the Lord's Day. And so we have resurrection hope. So there's light and hope for you. I don't know exactly what situation you're going through in your life today. Um, you might be going through a real dark season, a real bright and easier season of life. But either way, uh, we have resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. And so we can thank God for that and rest in it. Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, our brother Calvin already read it for us. Psalm 18. We're doing a short series on a few Psalms before we go back to Old Testament overview sermons. So we'll do Psalm 18 this week. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to do Psalm 63. And then we will, um, after that, we'll move on to our next series. So Psalm 18 this week and then Psalm 63 next week, Lord willing. Well, because Calvin already read the whole psalm, I'm just going to pick out for you uh, verses 1 through 3 and 46 through 50, the beginning and the end, okay? Hear God's word from Psalm 18, beginning in verse 1. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my God, my fortress. And my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I was saved from my enemies. Then go down to verse 46. The end. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation is exalted. God is. He grants me vengeance and subdues peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed to David and his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would overwhelm us with your goodness. You are our rock and our deliverer, our refuge. You are our salvation. Blessed be you, our rock. May you, the God of our salvation, be exalted. Overwhelm us with a spirit of thanksgiving and song. In the difficult times, when we're cheerful, Lord, we pray that you would give us your hope and that you would really fill and overwhelm us with your, with your goodness such that we can sing even in the darkest of days, knowing that there is light. We ask now that you would help us to see your light and your life because you love us. So help us now, we pray, because we are desperate for you. And apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. If you look at the prescript right before Psalm 18, before verse one, there's a, a prescript there that, that Calvin also read. For the choir director of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord Yahweh, David, who spoke the words of this song to the Lord Yahweh on the day 
on the day Yahweh rescued him from the grasp of all his enemies and from the power of Saul. So this song is a song responding to a story or an episode, or maybe even a series of episodes in the life of David, God's servant. David was constantly on the run for his life. And he was on the run from the most powerful person, the most powerful of enemies chasing him, King Saul. King Saul would be the president, the Supreme Court, and the commander-in-chief of the military of the nation of Israel. So he's not the legislative branch because that would be the, the Bible and the priest. But other than that, he's everything else. That's a powerful enemy. In control of all of those different things, executing the law, judging who's in and out of the law, in command of the military. And he aimed all of his power, all of his resources at killing David. He wanted to kill David because he was jealous and envious of David. So he chased David for years and years, and David had to live wandering in the wilderness on the run to stay alive. Some people joined him and began to follow David, but that isn't an ideal thing. Even when you have 400 men, soldiers with you, that is not security when you're going against a king and the whole military and the nation. He was the most wanted man in Israel. That's a stressful life, isn't it? That's a stressful season of life. That stress, that situation can tempt anyone to anxiety, despair, discouragement, depression, and even doubting God. God, are you there? Do you care? Are you good? But David was... Because of the, the weight of that stress, the, the lightness and joy of deliverance is proportionate, right? When you feel that weight and that weight is off of your shoulders and that burden is gone, when David was finally delivered from that stressful burden, he was cheerful. He was joyful. And we know we've just went through the book of James. James tells us in James 5, is anyone cheerful? Let him what? Do you remember that? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. If you're cheerful, sing praises. That's what you do when you're happy. That's what you do when you just got through a huge, overwhelming situation, and that situation is gone. It's done. It's in the past. And that's what happened for David. He was delivered, and so he wanted to sing praises. Delivered from King Saul. Now, we don't know exactly when this deliverance was. It could have been at one of the many episodes, because there are many episodes where David almost got caught by King Saul and barely escaped. It could be maybe when the last of Saul's family was executed in 2 Samuel, I think 21 or 20. It could be there as well. That is the context. All of Psalm 18, almost word for word, is quoted in 2 Samuel 22. There's a few different words different in the Hebrew, but mostly it's almost quoted exactly in 2 Samuel 22. And in that situation, it's right after Saul's family has finally been extinguished. It could be that. I, I think, now I don't know for sure, but... The, the, the time I think David would feel the most relief is not then, but when Saul finally died. Because David was on the run for years and years and years and years in the wilderness, almost getting caught a few times, and then finally Saul goes to battle, and Saul was, has won all of his battles, all of his military battles until this one, and Saul finally dies, and David is now no longer under the threat of a jealous king. Now, David did grieve over Saul and his best friend, Jonathan, for sure. 
but there was still a sense of relief. And I think this psalm would fit even that situation when you are no longer under the threat of King Saul. Now, none of you, as far as I know, are under the run, are on the run from the President of the United States or from the military or from the police, as far as I know. But you have other threats in your life. You could say they're smaller threats than what King David faced, but you have, you have threats in your life, whether it's a work situation, a school difficulty, a church or family challenge or a health challenge. And these big problems in our lives become overwhelming when they get a grip, not just as they're pressuring us from the outside, but when it actually grips our hearts on the inside. Because then when that problem grips us on the inside, then it can tempt us to be discouraged, anxious, distraught, fearful. It can cause us to isolate ourselves from other people and then just feel plain overwhelmed. And David is saying, God delivered me. And God is saying to you, God has delivered you and God delivers you. And because he does, what should our response be? I think the main goal of this psalm is verse 49. If you get a sense of it in verses one through three, you get a sense of it in the end, but verse 49 will say it explicitly. Therefore, because God saves me, because he's my rock, because he's my salvation, because of his goodness to me, therefore I will give, give what? I will give thanks to you among the nations, the ethnic people groups, Yahweh. I will sing praises about your name. So the main goal of this sermon is join in thanking the triune God among the nations and singing his praises. David is thanking God among the nations. He's singing his praises. And David and the text, and now even me this morning, I'm calling you to join in thanking our triune God among the nations. Thank God in front of other people. Thank God among the nations, among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, and sing his praises. Well, to unpack this and to get some strength to do this, I prayed it that God would overwhelm us with his goodness so that we burst forth with song and gratitude. We need to follow the story here in, in, um, in, in, this, uh, in this book. And so I already read to you, the, I have four points or three points. The first one is David's call to thank God and sing. David's call to thank God and sing. And I already did, I already... I already said them to you. Verses one through three, I love you, Lord. You're my rock. And then verse 49, um, give thanks among the nations and sing. You can look at verse 50. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So going back to verse one, David loves the Lord. Look at verse one. I love you, Lord, my strength. Why does David love God? Why does he love Yahweh, the God of the covenant? Because Yahweh is his strength. Yahweh is his rock his fortress. So if he's his rock and he's stable ground when everything in life feels shaky and unstable, God is his rock. When he feels threatened from the outside, God is his fortress. When he feels that he needs help because even though they're breaking through the fortress and his life is threatened, God is his deliverer. It says in verse one, right? Or verse two, you're my deliverer. You're my shield. You're the horn of my salvation. You're the power. You're my stronghold. And really, here's David's summary of the whole psalm in verse 3, in terms of the goodness of God, his experience. I called to Yahweh, who is worthy of praise, and what happened? I was what? I was saved from my enemies. So this is David's song, his testimony of God delivering him. 
This is almost like the song we sing, All I Have is Christ, right? I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way, right? I was lost in my sin and darkness, and yet God came and delivered me out. And, I'm, and so we sing hallelujah, right? All I have is Christ. We sing praises to God because we have a story of our darkness and how God saved us. And that's what David's saying here. This is David's testimony, okay? This, this psalm is David's testimony. So as we look at verses one through three, in verse 49 and 50, the application would be, thank God greatly, or no, the, the principle is this, to thank God greatly, you must think of God deeply. Your thanks is shallow when your thinking is shallow, right? Your thanking is shallow when your thinking is shallow. If you're gonna thank God greatly, you must think of God deeply. And so David doesn't just say, thank God he saved me and ends the psalm. He could do that, there's nothing wrong with that. But he actually spends verses four all the way to verse 47 to just think deeply to think deeply about God's goodness to him so that his praise rises high. So let's think deeply of God through David's story of rags to riches. So that's the way I'd summarize verses four through 48. God, David's story of rags to riches. So let me summarize the story and then we'll just actually walk through all of the verses, okay? The summary of the story is this. David is in trouble from King Saul. He's about to die, right? He's, he's being threatened. He cries out to God. God hears David. God saves David. David is running around and he's running away from Saul and David escapes and Saul eventually dies. And when David thinks about it, he's like, you know what? Yeah, I did run. Yeah, I did defend myself. But ultimately, who's the one who delivered me? God did. And so he's giving God the credit. God redeemed me. He saved me. And then God not only saved me, he made me the king. And not only did he make me king, he made me defeat my enemies. And now all of the nations even recognize me as the king in the region. And so that's David's summary. So from trouble to crying out, to God hearing him, to God redeeming him, to having him live the redeemed life. But let's look at this uh, more closely. So if I'm gonna, let me give you an outline here of, of verses four through 45. Verses four through six, Yahweh hears David's cries. Yahweh hears David's cries. Let's start there. Look at verse four. Listen, and, and you gotta imagine the imagery here because this is poetry. And so David is giving us these images. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. Man, that's scary. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. When the ropes wrapped around you, your arms are constrained, your legs are constrained, you're helpless, and it's just dragging you down and it's like being handcuffed, right? the handcuffs of death, the restraints of death, and there's nothing I can do to escape death. It's wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The big waves of destruction terrifying David. Look at verse five. The ropes of Sheol, Sheol is the place of the dead. This is another saying, the ropes of death. The ropes of Sheol, the ropes of the grave entangled me. The snares of the death confronted me. Snares, what's a snare? It's a trap, right? The traps of death. Even as he might escape one, there's a trap somewhere else. And if he escapes that trap, you know, if you've ever seen signs, I remember when we were in Israel, living in Israel for, uh, for a semester in college, there would be certain places where there would be fences and wires, and then there'd be a sign to say, don't cross this line, this is a minefield. They weren't able to get all the mines out during a time of war. So you don't walk through there. If you walk there, you might accidentally step on a, a mine, a landmine, and die. Snares, traps of death. 
And so David is wrapped up, but even if he could escape, there's traps all around him. And death is all around him, surrounding him, and he is overwhelmed. And when you're overwhelmed with death surrounding you, what do you do? What could you do? You do what David does. Verse 6, I call to Yahweh in my distress. I call to Yahweh in my distress, and I cry to my God for help. He cries out to God. And how does God respond in verse 6? From his temple, he heard what? He heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. And that's the point of this, this three, these three verses. Yahweh hears David's cry. David's overwhelmed. He's discouraged. And all you can do is cry out to God. And what does God do? From the temple in heaven, he hears. The sound of David's voice reaches the eardrums of God, so to speak. God hears the prayers. Praise God that he hears David's cries, right? David is happy that he hears his cries, but God is not just listening and doing nothing. What does God do? Second, from verses 7 through 18, Yahweh redeems David. Yahweh redeemed David. Look at verse 7 and 8. What does God do? Does God just listen and do nothing like a passive, helpless king or an indifferent king? No. Verse 7, then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he got, got burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. God hears and God reacts with what? What emotion? Anger. anger. God is angry. He's so angry that smoke is coming out of his nose. And coals are set on fire because David, God's servant David is being attacked. God is not indifferent. God cares. God doesn't just care. He cares so much that he burns with anger when David is being attacked. And look at verse 9. So not only is God angry because you could be angry and do nothing, but God acts. Look at verse 9. He bent the heavens and came down. Now God is on his way. He cries, God, David cries out, he's in heaven. He bent the heavens and comes, he came down, total darkness beneath his feet. Verse 10, God rode on a cherub, on an angel, and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place. Dark storm clouds his canopy around him. And from the radiance of his presence, his clouds set, swept onward with hail and blazing coals. So God comes down from heaven. He's angry. There's smoke coming out of his nose. He's hot. He's on fire. Things that he's touching, coals are burning up around him. He comes down. He rides on an angel. There's darkness with him where he comes. He comes on dark storm clouds as a canopy, canopy covering him. And yet from the radiance of his presence, the clouds sweep onward with hail. So there's hail and blazing coals. Hail is like cold, right? And then there's blazing coals, but there's just this, this all, all kinds of activity here, these natural activities that are showing God's act, action and initiative of coming down to meet David. God cares. God hears. God gets angry. God comes down to David, into David's trouble. And then what does God do in verse 13? God shouts. Listen to verse 13. Yahweh thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He thundered from heaven. Have you ever heard a real loud thunder? I've been in a real big thunderstorm 
where it almost sounds like the sky is splitting because of the thunder. God is angry. He comes and in the thunder of his voice, he makes his voice heard to David's enemies. He cares. He comes. He hears. He hears. He comes. He's angry. He comes and then he shouts at God, at, at the enemies of David. Not only does he shout at the enemies of David, look at verses 14 and 15. He attacks David's enemies. Look at verses 14 and 15. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. When I think of him hurling light bolts, I think of Zeus, <laughs> the Greek god Zeus. I'm like, I know it's not Zeus, but like, you know, this before uh, the, the Greek empire, it's just hard for me to just kind of push that out, right? But God here hurls lightning bolts and routs them. He attacks the enemies of David. And then in verse 15, well, before we get to verse 15. Now, is David being dramatic here? Does this sound a little overly dramatic? God burning with anger, smoke coming out of his nose, God bending heavens and coming down, riding on an angel and coming out and then shouting and thunder. I mean, did that happen when, when he was running from Saul? Did that happen? Like, did that actually happen? Like, literally happen? Why is, like, David, you're being a little dramatic here. Like, okay, dude, you escaped him. Like, he didn't even kill him. Like, the other army, he got a battle with another, with another, another army and they killed him. Like, God wasn't there shooting arrows from heaven. There's no lightning bolts coming down, dude. Dave saw that shot with a real arrow from the other army. Like, that's how he died. That wasn't God's lightning bolt. And here's David talking about God coming down, throwing lightning bolts at, at his enemies. You're like, dude, you should calm down a little bit. That, it's not that crazy. It's not that serious. Right? Is David just being dramatic? What does, what does this remind you of? Does this remind you of anything in the Bible? God coming down, dark clouds, thunder. Lightning, hail. What does that remind you of? Plagues. And what? Mount what? Mount Sinai when God comes down. Now that was literal. God coming down from heaven on Mount Sinai. Smoke, thunder, lightning, hailstones during the plagues. And God did come and actually took out enemies himself. It wasn't through another army. God took out the, the people of, or at least, who are the oppressors of God's people? Egypt, right? And God actually came down and acted. But David, that, that's not your story. That's there. But, but read on. Look at verse 15. Here's David talking about his trouble. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world, the bottom of the, of the earth, right? The foundations of the world were exposed. At your rebuke, Yahweh, at the blast of your nostrils. At the, bla at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What is he talking about in verse 15? What is that? When does the water get blasted, the depths of the sea become visible? Not a, not a Noah in the flood. That is not visible. It's the least visible of all time <laughs> during the flood. What's that? The parting of the yes, the parting of the Red Sea, right? At the at the parting of the Red Sea, the God at the parting of the Red Sea, the, the bottom of the floor actually becomes visible, right? It's, it's exposed. Now David is actually quote like he's he's thinking about the Exodus here. Let's let's just look at these verses. Go to Exodus. Okay, let me just show you a few verses here. Exodus nineteen, verses sixteen to twenty. 
Exodus 19. This is Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verses 16 and 20. You can just listen if you, if, you, if you haven't turned there. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a ram's horn. And there is no ram's horn. It's just a loud blast from a ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp, what? Shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And imagine the sight. You know, we we're just at Yosemite last week, but standing at the foot of the mountain. But it's not just the mountain that you're standing in awe, but like there's a cloud and there's darkness and there's this loud trumpet that's blaring. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because Yahweh came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. So there's even earth, the earth is quaking, Right? The mountain is shaking. At the sound of the ram's, as the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Wow, what an awesome sight to be there at that moment, looking at that mountain. And David is using this imagery to talk about what's happening to him when he's delivered from King Saul. Not only that, let's go back to the, the whole blast of the nostrils. Look at Exodus 14. So Exodus 14, let's, let's go to the Red Sea episode here. Exodus 14, verses 21 and 22 says this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind. It's the same word as breath in Hebrew. A powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. Look at chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Now Israel sang a song after they were delivered. Just like David sang a song after he was delivered, Exodus 15 is their song after the Red Sea closed. And what did they sing in, in Exodus 15, verses 7 and 8? Here's part of their song. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. They're singing to God. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And look at, listen to verse 8 now. The water heaped up at the what? At the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. God, with a blast of his nostril, with the breath of his mouth, splits the sea open. And they walk across on dry ground. Now let's go back to Psalm 18 here. You see here that David, well, let me just read to you one commentator here, Alec Matir, who's one of the best Old Testament commentators. He writes, reading from the title into the Psalm, we say, it wasn't like that at all. Your deliverance wasn't like that at all. When in David's story, did the Lord come swooping to his aid, riding on a cherub. Storms were sent to deliver, but not in David's story. In Joshua's story, they were. The Lord's wind carved a path through the Red Sea, but not such, no such incident is recorded for David. David was delivered by a different means, a Philistine raid, a wilderness of the terrain, Saul's impressionable conscience, and even by flight, and even the final battle. So why is David using this imagery to talk about his salvation and his deliverance? David is seeing himself and his story in light of the redemption of Israel in Exodus. And he's teaching us how to think about our deliverance as well. Look at, look at verse 16. 
Here's how David would summarize what, what God did. So not only did he blow the, the ocean back, look at verse 16. He reached down from on high and what? Took hold of me and he pulled me out of the deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy. In verse 17. He rescued me from my powerful enemy. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He's using Israel being pulled out of the Red Sea. And saying just like that happened to them when they were overwhelmed by Egypt. And God came down. When Saul was after me and my enemies were after me. In the same way God came down and pulled me out of the depths of the water. And delivered me. He redeemed me. He saved me. Just like he saved Israel. That's part of David's testimony. God saved me just like he saved Israel. He was angry for me just like he was angry for Israel. He reacted to say, he cared about me the way he cared about Israel. He, he thundered for me the way he thundered for Israel. He attacked my enemies just like he attacked Israel's enemies. He pulled me out of the water just like he pulled Israel out of the water. And so I thank God for saving me. That's what David is saying here. But it goes beyond that because David wasn't just pulled out and delivered from Saul. What happened in, in verses 19 through 29, Yahweh rewards David. So that'll be the next thing. Verses 19 through 29, Yahweh rewards David. Let's read on. Verse 19, he brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So where does God bring David? To a what? A spacious place. What about Israel? Did God bring Israel to a spacious place after taking them out of the Red Sea? Where did he bring them? To the promised land, right? To the land flowing with milk and honey. So again, David is still seeing his story as a mirror of Israel's story. But then let's read on to how David saying that Yahweh rewarded me because he delighted in me. Look at verses 20 through 29. Yahweh rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not turned away from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me. I let his word guide me. And I have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless toward him and, I, and kept myself from my iniquity. So what does God do? Because I'm righteous. So Yahweh repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, as good Christians, you read a text like this and a question pops up in your mind. What's the question? I'm sorry, say that again. Isn't our righteousness Christ's righteousness? Isn't our righteousness Christ's righteousness? Okay, that's a step too far, maybe, but yeah, I mean, that's a question. What would be the question? Is David that righteous? Is David that righteous? Yeah, does, well, well, like, does, does David deserve this, this deliverance? Did he earn it? Is, is he righteous enough to deserve this deliverance? And the answer is, at least according to the text, the answer is what? Yes. yes, I mean, that's, that's what it's saying, right? That God's repaying him according to his righteousness. Now, and even the word repay almost sounds like, he, like God owes. I'm not comfortable with this language, but it's the Bible's language, so I need to get comfortable with the Bible, not the other way around, right? Uh, before I want to explain it, I just need to just let the, let, the, let the text say what it's saying. But we do know that David doesn't think that he's perfectly righteous. I mean, David wrote in Psalm 14, if you just go back a few chapters, in Psalm 14, verse 2, David writes... Um, no one's, uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who's wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. 
So David is not saying that he's perfectly righteous or that he's perfectly good or that he's even good in God's eyes in a sense. But there's another sense in which David is saying, I am righteous. Like I, I am a righteous person. And because of this righteousness, God has delivered me. And this is important. You need to understand this when you think about the Bible because this is a, a, a regular biblical theme. I mean, part of it might be he's righteous, not like Saul, who was jealous and trying to kill people. But I would think of this righteousness even more than that. The righteousness, we just went through the book of James, and that talks a lot about personal righteousness. I, I would go to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness exceeds the law of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So your righteousness has to exceed whom? The Pharisees. But the Pharisees really try to keep the law, so you gotta exceed it. And so we might think, well, that means you gotta exceed it by being perfect. That's not what the rest of, that's not what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount says. In a sense, it's not like perfection in terms of perfect sinless perfection. That's not what it says. If you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? People say, don't murder. I say to you, don't even hate someone, right? Don't even hate someone. You heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't look at a woman with what? Lustful eyes, right? You have heard it said, don't keep, take, don't, um, you know, swear by this or swear by that. I tell you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. People say, love those who love you. But I say, love your enemies. And then, and what else do the Pharisees do? The Pharisees like to pray and fast, but they like to do it in public so they get credit from people. But you know what you need to do? You need to pray in private. You need to pray in secret. You need to fast in secret. And then he says, after that, he says, um, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve money or serve God. And you know what a true person of righteousness does? They seek first the kingdom of God and, not, and God's righteousness. They're not anxious because they know God will provide for them. So they trust God and they go all out for God. And you know what else righteous people do? They don't judge others. They don't ignore the log in their own eye and look at the speck in their brother or sister's eye. They take the log out of their own eye at first and they're humbled by their sin before they correct others. And not only that, they pray because they know that God is a good father who loves to hear. And so they ask and they receive and they seek and they find and they knock and the door is open to them. And not only that, they do unto others as God would, as they would want others to do unto them. And then Jesus says, some of them will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice righteousness. And who do, who's the one who enters the kingdom, he says at the very end of that sermon, the one who does my will. Well, what is his will? At least from the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's not just external righteousness, it's internal righteousness. It's not just showing others, it's doing it in private. Jesus is not saying in the Sermon on the Mount to see that there is none righteous, no, not one, and trust the righteousness of Christ. That's not the message in the Sermon on the Mount. That, is the, that Christ is certainly consistent with that biblical message, of course. That's not his message on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that if you, are, if you are part of my people, if you have been justified, if you like, if you, if you do have my power, and if you are a follower of mine, you will have a righteousness that's internal and external, not just by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law. That will be you. And those people who do that enter into the what? Kingdom of God. And those who don't do not enter into the kingdom of God. So when you go back to... Psalm 18, and you read 20 through 24, and David is saying, you repay me according to my righteousness. My righteousness, he's saying, I'm a real Christian, I'm a real believer. I'm a real follower, I'm not just show. 
I'm not just doing it by the letter of the law. I'm not just on the outside doing this. I really do trust you, God. I really do need you. I really do hope in you. I really do repent and ask you for forgiveness. I really do trust in you. And it really does show in my life practically, not just on Sundays when we gather, but throughout the week. It shows my life is a life of practical, true, real, God-produced righteousness. And so the Lord repays me. He delivered me because I'm one of his people. Because I'm one of his people. God is faithful to do that. Let's go continue in Psalm 18. Look at verse 25. And because David is truly righteous, not perfectly righteous, in that sense where he earns his own salvation, but truly righteous as a true follower of God. Verse 25, David says, With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. Amen. With the blameless God, you prove yourself blameless. And with a pure God, you prove yourself pure. So in God, God is faithful to keep his promise to to his people. He's faithful to keep his promise to the faithful. With the blameless who walk in God's ways, God does not go back on them. He is blameless towards them. With those who are pure, and Jesus even said, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Here, David's saying, well, with the pure, God, you prove yourself pure. You do them right. You do them right. But then it goes here in verse 26. But with the crooked, God proves himself what? Shrewd. Shrewd. This word in in Proverbs 8.8 is translated deceptive. With the wicked God, you prove yourself deceptive. Oh, that's a little way. Okay, we're not saying God sins. What does it mean by deceptive? I have to think about this. It means, in some ways, you can you think of it as God proves himself evasive. He overturns his enemies. He outmaneuvers them. The way if you're in a, bat, in a war or an undercover cop who's trying to uncover something to, to neutralize an enemy would prove himself shrewd and deceptive, not in a sinful, lying, unrighteous way, but in a way for the cause of righteousness and in a righteous way that's according to the ethics and codes of how to be an undercover cop, right? And in the same way, God does not, he outmaneuvers the crooked because sometimes it looks like the crooked get away with things, right? You look at this world, you're like, why is that guy not being judged by God, right? It almost seems like God is not, is being outmaneuvered by the, the evil in this world. And David's saying, no, With the faithful, he's faithful. But with the unfaithful, with the crooked, God is still shrewd. God will win. You cannot outmaneuver God. You can't outdo God. He will win in the end. And David knows that. So verse 27, for you rescue and oppress people, but you humble those with haughty eyes. Lord, you light my lamp. My God illuminates my darkness. With you, I can attack a barricade. With my God, I can leap over a wall. So God is faithful here. David knows he's faithful, and and, and so God rewards David. So not only does God hear David, and not only does God act and respond to David and redeem David, he doesn't only redeem David, he rewards David. And not only does he reward David, putting him in a spacious place, but he empowers David. So verses 30 to 45, maybe the rest of the psalm, verses 30 through 45, we can see God empowering David. Okay, I want you to see, and there's really two steps to it. There's an empowering of David, and then there's an exalting of David. But I want to put that under the one banner of empowering here, okay? So God empowers David all the way to the top. Look at verse 30. God, David says, his way is perfect. 
The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is a rock? Only our God. God, he clothes me, King David, he clothes me with strength. And God makes my way perfect. Uh, there's, there's a pointer to grace. That God, David's way is righteous because who made David's way perfect? God does. It's by God's grace that David's able to walk in God's perfect way. But continue, verse 33. God, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. He almost sounds like a super soldier here, right? Train, he, my arms can bend a bow of bronze. That sounds like super strength. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. And your humility exalts me. If we have time, we'll get back to that phrase there. Your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps and my ankles do not give way. God, you, you strengthen me. I'm strong because of you. I'm able to engage in war because of you. Look at verse 37. And so what does he do? He engages. Because you give me the strength, what does David do? I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they're wiped out. I crush them. And they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. It's aggressive, right? I annihilate those who hate me. If that's not aggressive enough, let's keep reading. They cry for help, but what? There's no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't answer them. Verse 42, I pulverize them. Did you know the word pulverize in the Bible? I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. Man, David is aggressive. He is dominating his enemy. And he is not relenting at all. His foot is on their throats and he is not relaxing in the slightest. He is going all out, and he is going all out by the power that God has given him to defeat his enemies, those who hate him, those who hate David. So he's exalted, he dominates his enemies, and, and, then, and, then, and then he's exalted above all the nations. Look at verses 43 to 45. You have freed me from the feuds among the people. You have appointed me the head of nations. Of, and that's not, don't, don't think 196 nation states in the world today. Think of ethnic people groups. You've appointed me head of, of all the nations, all the tribes and peoples and nations. A people I had not known serve me, serve me, David. Foreigners submit to me cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. In verse 45, foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. Let's read on, verse 46. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, the God of my salvation is exalted, even though there's a summary. This whole thing about exalting among the nations, David exalted. Look at 47. 47 says, God, he grants me vengeance and subdues what? Peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. That's why David sings and gives thanks to the Lord among the nations. Because David is exalted above the nations. He's above all ethnic people groups. This is Israelite supremacy. Israel's supremacy and the king of Israel in world domination. All the nations under the king of Israel, under King David. This is weird. Okay, uh, when you read the Psalms, I'm doing my devotions 
I might do my devotions in Psalms. Never mind. I'm in Proverbs. But when, when, when you go through Psalms, you read a lot about this like aggression of killing. When you look at Joshua and God says to Joshua and to the Israelites, hey, when you guys go into the land, you know what you're supposed to do to all the Canaanites? Wipe them all out. Every single one. No mercy. And he says, except like, I said, like the women who are not, who haven't been married yet, but other than, other than them, or like, you know, um, other than that, you kill everyone. Even the animals, everything. You, you kill, kill everything. You read stuff like that, you're like, is that the God of the Bible? Like, that doesn't sound loving. I thought God is love. I thought God is love. Why is there this, this, this enemy hostility in God? Why is God hostile? You have, to, you have to understand this about the holiness and justice of God if you're going to read your Bible well and know this God and enjoy him well. So go to Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 is really a key to the book, to the, to the Psalter. Look at Psalm 2. This exaltation above the nations, this violence towards the enemies of David the king. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So you have nations, you got peoples, you got tribes. Why do they plot in vain? The kings of the earth, of the earth take their stand against, and the rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his what? Anointed one. anointed one. What's another translation for anointed one? Messiah. Messiah. What's another translation for Messiah? Christ. Christ. Okay. The rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his Messiah, his Mashiach. Christ, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us, the nations say. What does God, how does God respond in verse 4? The one in, enthroned in heaven, what? He laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He, he mocks them. Then, then so he, First he laughs at them and mocks them. And then, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. What does God say to the nations? I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is my king, this Messiah, my king. And he is on Zion, my holy mountain. Verse seven, God continues, I will declare the Lord's, oh, this is now the king speaking, the Messiah. I will declare the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And the Lord said to me, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. What, is, what will the Messiah do in verse 9 to the nations? You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. The Messiah will break them and shatter the nations. Do you know that this is quoted in Revelation saying that about Christians? That you will shatter the nations? The Bible doesn't hesitate to take this and it's comfortable with this language. You will shatter the nations. You will dominate the nations. It's a dangerous teaching if you get this out of context, right? But it's biblical. You got to get it right though. So this Messiah will be above the nations. What does that mean though? Look at Psalm, look, finish the Psalm. So now kings, be wise. Here's the application. If this is God and his Messiah, you're either for him or against him. And if you're against him, he's going to annihilate you. He's going to shatter you like pottery. So what should you do? Verse 10. So now kings of the earth, be wise. Receive instructions, you judges of the earth. Nations, Gentiles, listen. Listen to all you non-Israelites. 
Receive instruction. Verse 11, serve Yahweh with, re with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's what God's message is to nations. Worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And you know what else is God's message? Verse 12, pay homage to whom? To the Son. Who's the Son? Well, you guys know Jesus because of the New Testament. But here in the, in the Psalm, it's the King. It's the Messiah. It's David. Whatever, whatever Davidic king is there is the, son of, is the son of God. The Davidic king is the son of God. So what God is saying to the nations is serve the Lord and pay homage to the Davidic king, to the son of God, or else he will be angry and you will what? Perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So what's the point here? What's the point to the nations? Will God pulverize his enemies if they reject God and his Messiah? Yes or no? Yes. yes. And he will do it not just on earth, but he will do it finally after the final judgment in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That's what hell is. When you read God pulverizing his enemies, the king pulverizing his enemies, that's a small picture of the bigger picture of God throwing all kinds of peoples in hell. And in Revelation 14, he crushes them under his feet. This is where we get the idea of the grapes of wrath, that God will stomp on his enemies in his wrath. And it's like the grapes, you know, as the wine flows, that's like their blood flowing out of the wine press because God is trampling on them. He's pulverizing them. And he does it through his Messiah, his Davidic king. And so the nations need to recognize and bow down to this Davidic king. So David praises God. And so to summarize the psalm, this is what, what John Collins writes, the commentary. He says, when God's ancient people sang this song, they gave thanks for the Davidic line and they prayed that its heirs would be faithful to the Lord and valiant military leaders so that Israel might carry out her God-given purpose of bringing light to the Gentiles. Because it's not, God's not ultimately about pulverizing the nations. God's, God's desire ultimately and primarily is what? That all people will be what? Saved and come to the knowledge of the truth through the Messiah, through the Davidic King. But if they don't, then there's only judgment. But if they do, there's mercy, there's salvation. Now, let me, let me try to bring this all to application here. The story of David, is, is re, he's recasting it in terms of the story of, of what? Of who? Of Israel, right? The story of David is seen like the redemption of Israel. And the story of Israel and the story of David is fulfilled in the story of David's greater son, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's just, just go back and look at Psalm 18 one more time. Just kind of, I'll pick some things out here. But read Psalm 18 now, not from David's perspective, but from the Davidic son's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. Listen to verse 4. And hear this on the lips of Jesus. Imagine Jesus saying, because he does say these things. Through, uh, as, as a good biblical theologian, the ropes of death were wrapped around me. <laughs> the torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Jesus was pursued by the enemy and the enemy's followers. Jesus had the ropes of death wrapped around him. And then in verse 6, I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. And like David, Jesus cried out to God for help. 
He cried out to God to save him from the ropes of death and from the plots of the wicked. He said, let this cup pass from me. God, there has to be another way. If there's another way, let this cup pass from me. So he cried out to the Lord to be delivered from the enemies, to be delivered from death, to be delivered from the ropes of death. But God did not deliver him from the ropes of death. He would not prevent the cross. Unlike David, God would not save Jesus, David's son. He would not grant the request that the cup of judgment be passed from him. He would not pull him out of the sea and away from the enemy and deliver him from death. Did God deliver Jesus from the cross? Did he deliver Jesus from death? No, he let him die. He called him to die. He sent him to die. He sent him to let the ropes and enemies and curse pull him all the way down to death so that even while he's crying for help, God would say no. And he would be pulled all the way down to death. More than that, when God's anger is, when God's angry, the earth quakes and darkness comes, right? Because he's acting. More than God just letting him die, God would take his anger and wrath and quaking and darkness to judge him. To judge David's son. To judge the Messiah. Not the Messiah's enemies, but the Messiah on the cross becomes the enemy. Or is treated like the enemy. Even though he never sinned, God pours out his judgment in darkness and wrath with the burning nostrils nostrils of smoke coming out. And coming down with his wrath, he comes down on his son on the cross. He was crucified. He was condemned. He was sacrificed. He was buried. He died. Did God deliver David's son the way he delivered David? No. And yes. And yes. Is he still dead? No. Look again at verses 15 and 16 of of Psalm 18. Verse 15 says this. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed. So this Red Sea crossing, there's this Exodus redemption. Verse 16, he reached down from on high and took hold of me and he pulled me out of the deep what? Pulled me out of the deep waters. God delivered Israel out of the waters. And waters is in biblical poetry oftentimes a symbol of death and chaos. And so God delivered Israel from death by delivering them so they wouldn't die. He delivered He delivered um, David because even though David was about to die, he delivered him so that he wouldn't die. But Jesus, he still delivered him. But first he went all the way deep down into the waters and actually died, and yet God did not leave him there. God still reached down and delivered him from the grave on the third day, and he rose from the dead. In a way that he did not deliver David from physical death, God would allow Jesus to die but rise. And this is what David, you know, you know that in Luke 9.31, when Jesus was transfigured and talking to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says in Luke 9.31 that G- Jesus, Moses, and David were talking about, it says in, in uh, Luke 9.31 in your CSB, his departure. You know what the Greek word for that is? Exodus. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. But it wouldn't be around the cross. He wouldn't be delivered from the cross. He would be delivered through the cross. And not only would he be delivered through the cross, 
and raised to victorious life to reign and now pulverize his enemies and be exalted among the nations? Not only would he be delivered through the cross, through that cross, he would deliver you and me and David and all of the people who take refuge in this Messiah. Even more than David being put in a spacious place and Israel being put in the promised land, Jesus fulfilled and fulfills and is fulfilling this vision of defeating the enemies and subduing them by the gospel spreading and him judging the world through his people so that he could save his bride and bring them to the final spacious place, the new earth. So for now, what does Jesus do? Just like David, when he was exalted, he would start reigning and pulverizing his enemies. What is Jesus doing now? He's at the right hand of God reigning on earth through his body, the church, empowered by his spirit so that his church, his body, the Messiah's body, continues to wage spiritual war, the spiritual war of gospel love and gospel progress among their neighbors and the nations to win his bride and indict his enemies until he comes. So that's what, this, that's what Psalm 18 is about. It's about Jesus right now reigning and using Bethany Baptist Church and using you, Christian, and using all other gospel Christians to extend his reign and subdue his enemies by waging war, the war of gospel love. That's why we put on the full armor of God, as um, Hannah confessed in her, in her prayer of confession, that we haven't put on this armor. We put on the armor of God and we go to war in the war of love to take thoughts captive to Christ, to preach the gospel, to call people to repent and submit to the king, lest they perish. That's the Messiah still reigning today. So join in thanking the triune God among the nations and singing his praises. Why should we thank God? Let me just be explicit in applying it. The way God saved David is the way he saved Jesus. And the way he saved Jesus through Jesus is the way he saves you. So God pulls you out of your sin by his grace in redemption. If you're not a Christian, here is good news and bad news for you. The bad news is, if you're not on Jesus' side, he will pulverize you. He will annihilate you. You will be crushed under his wrath forever and ever in hell because we're all sinners and we all deserve to be crushed under his holy wrath. That's the bad news. The good news is that he died for us. He came for us. He died for us. He rose for us so that if you would repent from your sins and repent from your righteousness and trust in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior and treasure, he will deliver you and pull you out of your sea of death. That's what he'll do. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on the name of the Lord if you're not a Christian. Call on the name of Jesus to save you and he will save you. So, but there's another way I want you to see this applied in your life, okay? Christians, not only in your salvation, I want you to see that every act in your life where God comes through for you are all little recapitulations of the Exodus. It wasn't just when Saul died that David saw it. Every deliverance where David would see God deliver him from things, when he would run away from Saul and get away, he's like, oh man, God just pulled me out of the ocean again. And then he would do another, he'd get in trouble, he committed adultery, and then he deserved to die, and then God forgave him, and what did God do? Pull him out of the sea again. 
And then he, he was a bad father, and, and then there was trouble, and one of his children killed one of his other, one of his sons killed his other sons because his son raped his other sister, and like he's, a, he's having problems there. He's kicked out, and, and he has all kinds of turmoil in his life. What does God do? Pulls him out of the ocean again. And so it's not just your initial salvation to see here. What I want you to see, if you're going to be overwhelmed with Thanksgiving, what I want you to see is that every time God acts for you, it's like, a, it's like an exodus all over again. In the trials of your life, when, you're, when you have overwhelming situations in your life and you don't know your way forward and you don't know how you're going to get out of this problem and it feels like the ropes of death are clamoring around you and, and suffocating you because you have problems at home or you have problems at work or you have problems at school or with your siblings or parents if you're a child or with your friendships or with singleness or with money or with health or in your marriage or you're parenting your children and it feels like you have a mountain to climb that you cannot, you cannot, you cannot climb over or church difficulties. God will deliver. He will redeem. He has. He will. He is delivering you and saving you even now. He does it again and again and again. The temptations in your life where the flesh and the world and Satan seek to overwhelm you. You know what God does? He delivers you. He forgives you and he redeems you. And one day you will face the final enemy. The snares of death will come for you and you will stare death in the face. And I wish that we could all be there together, right? I wish we could support each other and we can't to some degree, but we can't in, in, in a major way. We all have to go through that on our own. Death is coming and Jesus will be there to deliver you, to pull you out. All of these experiences of God's deliverance are his redemptive acts. They're all recapitulations of the Exodus redemption, of a Davidic redemption, of an Israelite redemption, of a Messiah redemption, of a Christian redemption. It happens again and again and again in your life. And then the Lord empowers you to be his soldiers, to be his followers, to wage holy gospel war in love and service and sacrificing yourself. We're not killing other people. We're laying down our lives and taking up our cross to serve them so that they might know the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus. This is David's story. This is Israel's story. This is Christ's story. This is your story. This is Bethany Baptist Church's story. So join in thanking the triune God among the nations and singing his praises. I'm going to change one word in a song we like to sing. This is my Messiah. This is Messiah's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, Christ is the ruler yet. This is Messiah's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. May we live a life of thanksgiving and song for Christ's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you deliver us. 
again and again and again. We thank you for the great deliverance in Christ. We could all share stories about our conversion. All of us who are Christian, we could share stories about our conversion. We could all share stories about the last two years of our lives and how you pulled us out of the water again and again and again. We praise you that you are a redeeming God who loves and cares. Thank you. We want to sing your praises and worship you. We thank you for your goodness. Overwhelm us, we pray, with your goodness and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.